Corey, welcome to the MVP Engineer Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little bit of your background. What are you What are you up to professionally these days? What are we What are we working on? What What's the goal we're going after? Oh, good question. Uh, so I'll give you it in a nutshell. I'm originally out of uh, Western Canada, and uh, I came to the U.S. in 1996, working on avionics stuff, the triple uh, seven aircraft. If you remember those days, um, worked on that for a few years derailed into Chicago working at Motorola for a while uh, and so in the states when I was working on aircraft stuff it was all in the Phoenix area so I spent 25 years in Phoenix and then uh, came out eventually came out here to California last year so I'd been I started off in aerospace and defense and then realized fairly quickly that that was a small niche market and um, got it into the the non-aerospace defense business and uh, all in the Phoenix area so I worked a lot of small startups and then some of them got uh, acquired um, one was uh, acquired by SAP not my company but I was working working there and uh, yeah. yeah just uh, mostly technical roles uh, and then I, f I figured out that I actually enjoyed um, leading people about 15 years ago and so I've been exploring that you know as a skill set within myself in various cool. degrees ever since yeah I worked with a rocket scientist at Google he made me look bad. Are rocket scientists really intelligent? You know, I've worked with a few. I mean, um, would you would you call a rocket scientist and a plane scientist or like a like a avionics engineer to be similar similar in skills? That's a good question. I think they're wired a little differently. Um, okay. From a, certainly from a, a we'll call it a regular engineer. You know, uh, software. Software people, I find about 50-50 that they went through computer science or computer engineering. And, and then a lot of them got there from some other discipline. Maybe it's music, uh, whatever. But, but the really hardcore scientist folks who I find quite often find themselves either in software or on the data science side. Uh, like I had an old boss who was a, God, he was a particle physicist and uh, just wired a little differently. Uh, communicated a little differently and it was uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to compare the two but they both had some you know communication is a hard thing depending on how far one is out there <laughs> the farther out there you are the harder it is to communicate sometimes yeah you've commented on the music a couple of times what are you what are you into in the music side of things um, well I won't call myself a musician but I played guitar for a long time and um, how are you not a musician? You create music. Is that not a musician? Uh, you know, relative to relative to people who are really good at it, you know, like I think I have some skills when I'm in the zone, and then I I see I see people out there that really have skills, and I go, okay, this is on a scale. I'm way way over here, and uh, um, so it's it's relative and I I think putting myself anywhere in the same sphere is maybe to do them a disservice. So I just kind of disclaim it with that and I just do my own thing anyway. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, I had this fear in high school one time when I was like, you know what? I'll never be the best tuba player in the world. But I was the best tuba player in New York. Did you really play good. tuba? Tuba, right? I played the tuba, I was the best. Awesome. Yes, sir. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had trombone. When the when the, tuba played the, when the tuba played the rumba on the tuba. <laughs> solo. How many tubas do you know play a solo in a band? I don't think I've ever heard of it. Come on. <laughs> Never heard of it. I was that good. That's so, um, and I thought to myself, you know, I'll never be the best. I'll never be the best. And then somebody, I think the girl that I loved said, uh, hey, you don't have to be the best at any one thing just as long as you make the people around you happy. So yeah. you are yeah. a musician. Like, don't sell yourself short. Come on. But yeah. also, like, do you think you can be a rocket scientist? Hard to say. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, uh, in, I grew up way up north in Canada, and uh I used to sit on the garage roof in the wintertime, you know, in the dead of night, just staring at the sky and, you know, fantasizing about human interstellar space travel. And so I, I don't know if I'd be a scientist, maybe an astronomer or something like that. But, um, yeah. And then I just said, well, you know, I like Gattaca, I liked Gattaca where, they, uh, yeah. where the main characters just looked out into the sky every time it launched. That was so inspiring. Have you seen that movie? I, I saw it years ago. I don't quite, um, I can't say that I remember it. But um, I was always fascinated by just the, the, the possibility of overcoming the, you know, overcoming the, the distances with some, here's where my physics ignorance comes up, you know, wormholes and somehow collapsing space time so you could leap from one side to the other. I hear yeah. you. So you, think you want to talk about how aliens? the fitness best jock? Oh, yeah. <laughs> reading tea leaves. You want to talk about health and fitness for desk jockeys? I think... I think that's relevant to like what you're talking about getting into the zone with the guitar, right? Like for me, the fitness thing just changed my whole company. It really did. It changed my whole mindset. It changed my whole view of success. It changed my ability to focus hmm. all day long. So tell well, me, what do you do yeah, for, what, what, uh, for the that's fitness? That's curious to me because um, yeah. Anytime somebody says that, I'm, I'm curious about it. I find the same thing because um, I'd, I'd been in a hockey player because in Canada, if you don't play hockey, people think there's something wrong with you. Um, You're nobody. You know, yeah. Something wrong. But uh, I got into, uh, you know, the, the whole weightlifting thing, which as I look back on it, the older I get, the more I, I say, couldn't you have done martial arts or something with a little more longevity to it? But um, it's it's still Is a big weightlifting thing. weightlifting not, not, not a long not a long-term thing? It depends on if you do it right and you don't hurt yourself. Yeah, it depends on the level, you know. (laughs) Um, You don't have to compete. You just have to keep your body in shape. I don't know. I found the weightlifting is significantly better. I found weightlifting was significantly better than the running and uh, the cardio. I just find that uh, it's so much harder. And that's what makes it better. And it changes your body in a way that that the other things don't. Like... You go down to the gym at your apartment or the hotel or anywhere, and the, the whole thing's full of treadmills and the and the cardio. But that's not how to do it. I think these people are just wrong. I think they're just doing, I don't know, just like not mental masturbation, but like gym masturbation. It's like they go to the they go to the treadmill and they're just like whatever. We're gonna do the treadmill, but. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems it seems that you you tear the muscles so much more aggressively when you're just lifting heavy things. Um, yeah. And I just feel so much better when I do that. I mean, I, the euphoria of the runner's high. I don't get nearly as much anymore as as what I get when I when I just lift weights. Hmm. So, 
Yeah, I know. That's been my experience. So you do the weightlifting and you want to do the martial arts. I mean, martial arts is, is good for confidence and for discipline and for kind of understanding your mind and wanting to, to do something new and, and pragmatic and positive. But I don't know if you're actually like exerting yourself as much physically unless you're doing like grappling. What kind of martial arts are you into? Oh, it's, this was going back a few years. I used to do a lot of, uh, a little bit of grappling. I wasn't really built for it, tall, lanky, but, um, uh, yeah. you know, just striking, karate, little boxing. I just found it to... Um, yeah, I was just, I was actually just going to, I was actually just going to criticize karate because mm -hmm. like, in, in, I haven't done much karate, but like, you're not, you're not, you're not striking anything. You strike the air. Is that, is that not accurate with the, um, the, the cot, the katas? Katas? Yeah. And while I was never into the katas, uh, I was in it for the sparring. So I, I didn't do very well because okay. I, at the time I was, you know, a lot less mature than I am today. And, uh, I was in it for the combat. I wasn't, uh, this was before the MMA craze. Otherwise I would have been going in that direction yeah. and probably in a lot of trouble, but, um, absolutely. I, I like the, I like the intensity of, of the combat side of it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's good. So the thing that we, we talked about in our pre-meeting that I was most interested in is why database people and application people see the world differently. Because I worked on the database team at Wayfair. I was on the database side. Okay. Um, and uh, we, were, we were just refactoring and kind of putting an application. We were putting kind of like a, a layer on top of the, the database because we couldn't scale it anymore vertically. Hmm. The, we had a Microsoft, Microsoft SQL Server, and it was just as large as it could possibly be. And uh, we couldn't throw money at it. We physically couldn't throw money at it. Okay. Um, so we had to tear apart the, the layers and layers of this. And Microsoft SQL Server allows you to have um, – I forget what they're called. I'll look it up right now. But um, like scripts on top of it, like SQL scripts mm -hmm. that are more complicated and almost like Turing complete language that like lets you, that lets you do things on top of it. And because each of these different teams at the company would use these scripts, um, it was very difficult to tear apart and, and, and decouple it. Yeah. Um, so I've thought about those problems, and I've, but most of my career I've been building applications and you know, websites and, and back-end algorithms for, uh, for that. But give me your perspective because you're the one that brought it up. <laughs> so I want to yeah, it was, yeah, I brought it up. It was just top of mind. At the time, I've run into it a lot. Um, um, the language, I didn't know if you meant like just stored procs in T-SQL or something. But um, what I've always found was uh, that any time I've been at the intersection of having an application team and a database team, it was always really challenging to, to get them on the same page with each other. Even if you're talking about like basic design of objects in the system, right, to even come a level above the technology. Uh, the, like we all come at this in life as in technology, we come at it through our own lens, right? And I'd always see that the database people want to talk rows and columns because that's, that's the native language of that mindset. Application people want to talk objects and they're not always the same thing. And I've actually had, you know, instances where, um, you know, when I, when I try to say, okay, architecturally, it seems like we should be breaking these two concepts apart so that we can maybe split out the data set and we'll put a 
service on top. I'm avoiding the word microservice here, but you get the idea. And, and then the database folks would say, yeah, but I can do all this with stored procs. And it's a very much a, it's a different mentality. And the two don't always cross in the same body, you know? Um, so that, and I've, I found this to be a repeating pattern. And, uh, yeah, you got it. It's called a stored procedure. That's what it was in Microsoft procedure. SQL Server yeah. for, for the reference. Um, yeah. why, is, why is a table not an object, a column not an attribute and a row not an instance is that not what we is that not just what it is that's the way i i mean i'm an applications guy so that's the way i think about tabular data i just i just naturally go there but uh, you don't but you don't have but yeah. you can think about it either way they're equivalent no yeah they are yeah yep for example are people just are people just stupid and can't can't get out of their own heads what's the problem <laughs> Well, that's a good question. I, I don't think it's stupidity. I, I just think there's there's um when you're it's a rigidity when you've been looking at the same problem the same way long enough, you, you've get you get these natural blinders on, you know, and I think it's this is where I'm, I'm so into pliability of the brain, even for my own sake, that yeah. I, I try to be able to come out of those linearities of rigidity of thought and, and try to look at the yeah. problem, you know, outside. You know, it's in, really tough. It's, it's tough. I've never taken the same job twice. People like get into the same industry and they build software for crude oil for their entire career. Yeah. And it's like software has nothing to do with oil. Yeah. Like, why don't you switch industries? Yeah. Why don't you learn a new thing? And it's just so tough because I just switch jobs every year or, or switch projects and I try and keep as plastic as possible so that, so that I can solve something novel because the problems of yesterday are not going to be the problems of tomorrow. They're just, they're just brand new. That's what a business is. Right. It's solving a new problem. So was that a conscious thing for you to switch? Like, were you aware of it at the time or was it kind of a pattern that you realized later was no, conscious? I did that. I did that from the beginning. I did that every second. Cause I was like, I need a new challenge. I'm bored of you people. I'm bored of this problem. Yeah. I need something new because the way you make money, is you go to Google, you work for Google Cloud, and then you talk to Amazon Web Services and you say, hey guys, I want to give you all of Google's secrets. And they say, well, you have an NDA. And you say, okay, cool, whatever, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'll, you know, because the employee is usually protected. Yeah. Because it's really hard to enforce these NDAs. Very um, Huh. Or or non non competes right? They're more mm -hmm. like non competes, and um, that's how you make money. And I didn't make money when I was doing this stuff. Like I mm -hmm. didn't I didn't I didn't actively try and and swap between competitors. I just said I just take the most challenging thing I can do, Corey. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. I just try and figure out what's the hardest thing I can do, and let me go fucking succeed at it. And, and yep. now I'm back okay. at the place where, where the people trying to hire me are like, hey, you keep jumping between jobs. And I'm like, guys, it's, this is the startup world. Of course, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Like that's, that's how you make money. You switch, you switch jobs. And, and you get a promotion every time you do it. You yep. know, I was a principal engineer on my, third, on my fourth job. Because they were like, oh, you succeeded, as, uh, you succeeded as a junior engineer at Google. You succeeded as an engineer at Google. You succeeded as a senior engineer staff engineer and now your principal hey easy easy game mm -hmm. right and now i'm a fractional cto 
Like, you get to do whatever you want. How long did, like, and, and I'm doing the best work that there is. Because I build an MVP for 16000 that the competitor says is 87. And it's not even that I just build it for that because he didn't tell me what to build. I told him what to build. Hmm. And I didn't even charge for that. Like, I'm so poor right now because I don't fucking charge for my services. It's absurd. Hmm. It's just absurd. Um, but I don't know. I'm just, I, I feel like I'm crushing with these companies and, um, yeah. So you're, you're a fractional CTO. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, um, uh, you know, in the startup world for a long time and I've taken different roles based on really just my interest in solving problems. I have yeah. never really necessarily cared that much what the title was. So from that standpoint, I'm, you know, I, I've never been somebody that gave a damn about climbing corporate ladders, but I, I did care about yeah. being able to weigh in on the strategy. So I think that's what led me down that road. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've been, I've been serving as fractional for a company out of California for about a year. That's awesome. I, I always got along with owners and less with managers. Have you had that experience? Yeah. And it wasn't always that way. Um, I had a company uh, a few years back where I, I had to step into uh, even a very small amount of time. If anybody hears this, they're going to laugh if they know what it was, but uh, stepped into a role of a CEO. And then, you know, I've also started my own things here and there with various endings. And I think the more I did that, the more it gave me an appreciation for identifying with the owners. Like you got a certain amount of money, you got to reach, reach a certain goal. And it's about how do you get from A to B and the rest of it is not that they don't care, but they're focused on the outcome. And I, I, I find that that's, I identify more with looking at things that way uh, yep. than necessarily the weeds. I, I go top down in my thinking, maybe that's it, but yeah. Cool. Um, you know, I was going to, I was going to say when you're talking yeah. earlier with like, I've seen a lot of them, um, bigger companies and, and they do say that they go, well, you've, you know, you've gosh, William, you've, you've switched jobs so many times and we like to, you know, we like to promote from within because so-and-so knows the business really well. And I, I do think there's, there's definitely a trade-off there because, and I think that's why a lot of big companies have trouble thinking entrepreneurially. Like they don't, they don't yeah. they suck in innovation because they've got people that, that come along with the business. Yeah. They understand where the skeletons are buried. I think that has serious, like legitimate value, but, but it also means that unless they're like as conscious as you are about pliability of their own mindset, they tend to get locked into the same, the same patterns. Look, I don't think they're wrong. I don't think they're wrong. I think they just have a different strategy. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, are you calling Jeff Bezos stupid? Are you calling Larry Page stupid? I don't think you can do that. No. Right. No, like, you, you might be able to call you might be able to call the employees stupid for their own like personal impact, right? Because they might not make as much money as a lifer at Google. Because when I was at Google for four years, I looked around and I saw lifers. Hmm, really? Right? And I said, I can't I can't be a lifer at this company. I have to go do my own thing. Hmm. Um, what did what did a lifer look like that was different from from you in mindset? Well, let me, let me just finish the thought on, on Jeff Bezos. And I believe the reason why I like to move so fast is that 
I believe when you hire somebody, you get the best work out of them. You get the most intelligence out of them from the first minute you speak them, speak to them, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the first year, you get all their good work out of them. And then after that, it kind of declines. And it doesn't even decline. It just like stays the same. And it's like you got my 35 years of experience and intelligence and understanding and creative problem solving. And you get that in the first month. I'll fix all your problems in a month. And then I'll move on. So that's why Jeff Bezos front loads or, or back loads um, the equity. Because he pays real cheap. He says, stay on for a year. I'll give you 12, 15% of your equity instead of 25 or maybe it's 10. I forget. Depends mm. on the negotiation. But the guy stays for a year. He gets his soul crushed, hates his boss, hates working for Jeff, and then leaves the company after a year. After he did the best work and, and, and had a really bad time and gained a bunch of weight and uh, did whatever, Right. So that's one strategy, and Jeff, Jeff Bezos is doing a really good job with that strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the best strategy for, a, uh, for an engineer? I don't know. Amazon's good on your resume. Yeah. But, and it shows that you're willing to work, right? But some people work and some people own, mm-hmm. right? And Larry Page has the opposite strategy, and he says, I'm going to make your life so easy that you never want to leave. Mm-hmm. I like Larry Page's... Uh, strategy better as as an employee for sure and I like Larry Page you know just understanding his philosophy and understanding what he was going doing and going about I liked what he was doing Um, I don't know Jeff Bezos that well at all I just see the press but you see you see him from inside when you're when you're working at the company Um, and um, yeah so it's just different strategies and, yeah, I've heard and the that same was, that was Amazon, my other, the question Amazon. I have for you with your with your startups is mm-hmm. when you when you go and you find clients and you find targets for your fractional CTO work, what um do you look for a certain size of company? Do you look for a certain personality type of the owner? Like you can be a choosy guy, right? So like, what do you choose? What do you filter for? Because I I'll tell you what I filter for in a second, but tell me what you filter for. I've historically, I've been filtered, uh, filtering by, um, now these are real early stage startups, right? These are even struggling to find product market fit, which is a really yeah. tough area. That's a tough Absolutely. area. And um, I tend to filter by people who um, have a very clear outcome in mind. And yeah. bonus if, if they know they need to be really close to the customer. Because I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, what I care about is, people that use the stuff of the teams that I'm helping to, to go from A to B. Right? That's where I get fulfillment. If I, if I see somebody who's, you know, maybe we make a process suck less or maybe make their life just marginally better in some mundane business activity, for me that's a high, and I, I like that. So if they have a, a strong connection to their audience, they know their own space, uh, and usually what I see is that the, it's at some point where the tech is an obstacle when it should be an enabler, right? If I can see that scenario, then I could probably do something with it. And that's that's historically been what I've looked for. I like that. I try to do something similar. I think that's a good I think that's a good um, a good filtering mechanism. But I'm trying to do something a little bit bigger 
Hmm. And the way that I try and filter is um, I think to myself, what's my company missing? Like where, where does my brand and what do I care about personally that like I don't have in my life? And how can I align with a startup and a company to go build that thing and then go use that product? Hmm. It's not just about building a portfolio. It's about building products that I need. I want to be a user for free Hmm. for the hottest startups. So you have to be able to really identify with it. Yeah. And it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of compromise, right? You know, you, you meet, you meet, you know, 20 startups that are looking for help and you say, Hey, I'll invest in you. And you, you do a trade for services, right? You trade for services and then you say, Oh, looks like I'm helping you more than you're helping me. Give me some cash. I need to eat a smoothie today. I try and live my life pretty lean, not, not spend too much, not spend too much money, but, um, find things to grow the, to grow the company. So for example, there was one that was doing some like LinkedIn marketing, LinkedIn sales, LinkedIn outreach. Right. And I was like, Hey, let me build this guy's tool. And when I build this guy's tool, I'll have a tool for myself. Hmm. I had like what a thousand followers before I met that guy. Now I have 5,000 just based on his insights. He taught me how to use LinkedIn. And now I'm bigger than him. Awesome. (laughs) I love that. So, hey man, steal my strategy. Go start working with companies that are going to build your company, right? Um, And then I worked with a marketing company that's building AI images, right? So Mm -hmm. I do a lot of integration work. So this company was um, one that was doing, uh, they were using MidJourney. You're familiar with MidJourney? Yep. So we did Midjourney, and uh, we used Hugging Face and ChatGPT to create the prompts, and um, so we just integrated those three, and used hashtags from social media. It's called TrendMaker, mm-hmm. and then my marketing team just used TrendMaker for everything. We used it for free. We built it, and we're showcasing our products to our audience, and building it for them for cheap. You know, so I don't know. That's, that's how I'm trying to do it because I think, I think some people, well, some people think I'm a little bit of a, uh, a minimum viable product development shop, hmm. but that's not how I view myself. I view myself even more than a startup studio. I'm just a startup. I'm, I'm growing and I'm, I'm using these startups as sasses for my own growth, right? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because there's a natural alignment of objectives there and you can identify with what they're trying to do because you're feeling the same need for yourself, right? That, that does make sense to me. Yeah. Certainly, I, um, I have an appreciation for how dreadfully hard marketing and outreach is. <laughs> so let's see. Launching passion projects. Tell me about a passion project of yours. I want to hear. Well, it has to do with tech leadership. Um, I mean, this is how uh, Ash and I know each other, for example, is I, I really like what he's doing. And um, uh, maybe you can identify with this, but in, in tech, 
uh, when you've been around a long time, you kind of see the same patterns, especially in tech leadership. And um, so what I started to do a couple years ago was uh, I had an epiphany one night. I just said, okay, I'm going to start writing down. I started from um, every bad example I ever had as far as leaders that I reported to. And I said, okay, let's flip that around and say, how would you, how would you coach somebody who was not necessarily just transitioning from individual contributor into leader, but even even mid-career guys who, uh, people that had, had felt like they were lacking something or didn't have a, a framework to help them understand how to be a good leader versus a not-so-good leader, as an example. So I started to carry this forward, and before I knew it, I had a almost an entire curriculum just, just for that vertical. And um, I started to just informally put cohorts of people through it as though it were a real thing and it started to become a real thing. So my, my passion project is uh, is to help help people upskill, and I use that term a little bit unfairly, perhaps it sounds mechanical, but upskill themselves as leaders because what I've found in my own life is that when I was doing that as a leader, I also had to do it as a person. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a big separation between those two. So that's, that's what I'm kind of carving out is a, a methods and strategies for helping people do that in their own life and, and career at starting with tech leaders. But it's, it's, I think it's going to end up I, a little more broad. I love that. It's a little bit of like entrepreneurship coaching. I do a little bit of that myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I looked at some of your content and what, what you're saying about LinkedIn outreach. I mean, I'm doing this, I'm doing this now myself, right? And I'm absolutely awful at it because I, I think that, uh, why you, you're so negative about yourself, man. <laughs> Talk to me after you hit the gym. Go to the gym, do some deadlifts, and then come back and talk to me. You just have so much more confidence. It's just, it's just, it's just how it works. No, I, I, yeah, and I appreciate the correction. Thank you. But yeah, it's a. Uh, I just, I'm aware that it's not my core skill, and I'm working on it. So where it is next year will be way different than where it is right now, and. Uh, I'm I'm just in the process of working through it, and I know I'm gonna keep working through it. I'm not gonna stop because, at that time, my inner self-talk is, "Boy, you really suck at this." You know, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna keep uh, keep on churning my way through it. I love that. I love that. Um, let's see what else we had on here. Um, crap, we've seen in startups. What what were you thinking of specifically when you when you mentioned that? Well, you know, I was thinking you as a, you know, you've had a lot of experience. I'm, I'm sure you've had some, you've seen some pretty wild stuff about startups. And uh, I thought we could compare notes. I mean, I've seen uh, probably more startups that ended up with negative outcomes, meaning crash burn outcomes, than I have okay. seen with, you know, successful exits and so forth. And um, I don't know, the common elements to me are, uh, well, product market fit is really tough. That's just the product market fit is so tough. Yeah. <laughs> um, product market fit and then probably a lack of uh, lack of understanding at the leadership level of how complex tech actually gets, meaning how long of a tail it leaves. Right. It's pretty common. For long, founders how long of a tail it leaves? How long of a tail, so, meaning it's, it's common for founders to say, OK, well, today we're going to we're going to go out and solve this problem. Uh, and then we're going to find out it's not such a great idea. Tomorrow we're going to go solve this problem. But I'm going to take the same team yeah. and switch gears that, that quickly. And it just kind of doesn't happen, right? You, you can't turn it around on a dime unless you're wholesale throwing out your your prior 
product or whatever you've built and trying What's to... What's the problem with that? I, I, I pitch that every company I go to. Just start with zero lines and just throw together three libraries. That's how you build a company. You throw together three libraries and then you try it out. And then yeah. you throw together three other libraries and you just build it from scratch. Why is yeah. that so hard? I, I don't think it should be that hard. And that, that's, I think it's an expectation that, that should be more understood. Like if, if you're going to do pivots, you got to be prepared to throw your old stuff away. And quite often- You've got to throw it away every it fucking away. time. It's yeah. crazy. You yeah. know- I, I, I watched this game designer, Game Maker's Toolkit. He's like a genius guy on YouTube. Mm. And um, he, he, uh, he interviewed the guys from Celeste. And Celeste is my favorite game. It's the hardest. I told you, I just choose the hardest shit possible and then try and succeed at it. Celeste is one of the hardest I, games on the Switch. Okay. And uh, are you familiar with it? No, I'm not actually. It's about climbing a mountain. It's, yeah. a, it's a platformer. But anyway, um, he interviewed the, the Game Maker's. And he said, how do you get it to just like feel so good? Because there's a thing called game feel and like okay. how you um, – and there's like coyote time and just like getting the timing right of just like each and every pixel, right? Okay. And they said, how did you get it right? And they said, well, we just had to throw out so much stuff whenever it, was, whenever it wasn't working. And you have, to kill, you have to kill your darlings. You just have to be like, this is not working and it's not a waste. It's not a waste. And the reason it's not a waste is because as you did it, you learned something. And the learning is the product. The learning is the result. The learning is the success. And as long as you can learn something, then, then, then it doesn't matter if the code exists in the final product. I think that was the take home that I, I heard. Like the code doesn't exist in the final product, but the learning does. And yeah. then the, the, the final product is, is something smaller or different or, or whatever. It's like people don't want to waste their time. And it's like the sunk, mm. sunk cost fallacy in engineering. Mm. You're familiar with that, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's probably, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. And it's probably one of the harder things that I've seen because I think I'm trying to put people myself just in are in love with their ego. Yeah, and they, well, that and they the don't understand they don't understand dependencies either, right? Like they, they say, okay, yeah, let's let's start over and we'll do this, but I want to take this little piece of what we did and that little piece and that little piece and like, yeah, now you made it ten times harder. So like, toss it all, and we can just kind of remake these two little guys in the middle, and right? They they tend yeah. to not not and maybe you're right, maybe it's. More like I don't want to throw that baby out because I feel like there's some validity to the thinking and I have yeah. to pull some of that with me to feel like it's I'm too doing pretty. this. It's too beautiful. I created a beautiful piece of code and I want it in the product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. How about this? Can we get rid of uh, don't repeat yourself? Can we get rid of that shit? Is that the worst? <laughs> yeah, I think in context, I mean, if you're, if you're in code and, yeah, okay, you got two identical things you just wrote and you're going to centralize it somewhere into some function, great, don't repeat yourself. But as a, as a collective thing, yeah, I, I think that leads to engineering purity where it shouldn't be there. Um, there's a trade-off for sure. <laughs> yeah, like a, I think we, we adhere too much to that, and especially in startups where you can't, you can't – Engineering purity will give way to a business trade-off all day, every day. All right. And of I, I course, say it just like that. the business owner, but 
I don't know. At, at Google, at Google, like engineers were the first class citizens. Engineers were always the rock stars. It's mm. not the case in most companies. Yeah. So true. I've always had that mindset of I'm the one that's right. Because when I started at Google, they just they just treat you like like the like the celebrity because you are the celebrity, right? But Google doesn't do a very good job of marketing and selling. They do a good job of having the best tech, the cheapest mm. tech. But you look at the USB-C protocol, Apple marketed it. You know who built it, yeah? No, who built it? I don't know the backstory. Google Google made the made the protocol. Hmm. But Apple made it white yeah. and made the little plastic thing that makes it look good. Because yeah. all the wires on the Google shit looks like crap. It's like you're yeah. it's like you're it's your like like your IT guy in the basement with the fire on. Right? <laughs> like Google just doesn't do a good job of that stuff, mm. but their engineering is is the best. And um, I loved one of the PhDs that said like the engineering culture isn't that good at Google. And I don't know where he was going, but um, or where he was uh, looking, but mm. yeah, I think the engineering culture at Google is just so so far and away, or at least it was at the time. And I think it still is. I, I believe it still is. Um, when you came out of there, did you did you have to adjust your your mindset a bit when you kind of came out of that engineer first culture and saw some other things? I mean, what what did that do for your mindset? No, I think I think the Wayfair I think the Wayfair wasn't the engineering first mindset, but the other but the other startups I made sure they were. They wouldn't have hired me if they didn't like it. If they didn't mm -hmm. like my attitude, I think I've just been very lucky in finding the right types of roles. Um. The one at my my job at Row Business Banking was uh, from a from a VP that was at Snapchat, and you, of course, know that Snapchat is going to be that kind of culture as well. Yeah, interesting. Because you always you always take something with you when you're at a company for any length of time, and especially when you're getting exposed to that kind of culture, you always take some of that with you until the next one, and it kind of yeah. we are the sum of our accumulated experiences. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what else was I going to mention about that? Um, do you have any passion projects that are engineering, engineering first or engineering only? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the direction of, uh, obviously, in generative AI, where that's going. I want to be a yeah. little more hands-on with it than I, than I am right now. Uh, right now, I'm more looking at how it's unfolding and how, how businesses are looking at it. Um, yeah. I, mean, I still like to write code. I just don't necessarily do it day to day anymore. But um, yeah, I still miss it. <laughs> so, yeah, I believe you. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, because at one point I just wrote it too much. And now I'm like, I can't even find the time to to write as much as I want because I'm doing everything else. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's part and parcel of the startup that you're doing. Your skills have to. Yeah move into different areas and um, you yeah, start you just, delegating what you, you want to learn that. everything. You just have to do everything. It's wild because you have yeah. to know it better than your employees. You have to learn it. You have to get it better. And then you have to hand it off to somebody making $4 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and then trust and then trust that they won't fuck it up too much. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you got to give it some, some guideposts and um, hopefully yeah. check, check the result before it goes anywhere. Right. Yeah. You asked about the uh, lifer mentality at, at Google. Let me see if I can comment on that. Um, 
I don't know. I just saw that they were comfortable. How about that? They were comfortable. And I don't think I want to live a comfortable life. Mm. Yeah. There's a book called yeah. Hunting Discomfort. I haven't actually read it because I feel like I could write it. <laughs> I think any, but, anybody that's anybody that's done, you know, your, your physical guy from what you said, I think anybody that, that's been exposed to that um, has a basic understanding that discomfort and growth are tied together. They're you know, just, it's, it's just the same thing. Yeah. You know, I take ice baths and, and my, my dad always brags about how he's worked out an hour every day of his life and he's the hard, you know, he's hard, but then he's also like, I'm a girl. I don't know. It's so weird. But then, then I'm like, just take a cold shower. And he's like, no, I can't do that. I'm cold all the time because he's thin. Mm. And it's like, just take the cold shower. Like it's hard. And that's exactly the point. Yeah. Because once you do it, you realize that you're not going to fucking die. You're just not going to die. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I think it's about facing death and saying like, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to die today. So I'm going to do this hard thing. And it's focus on, on code. It's focus on business. It's focus in every area of life. And if you're able to find, if you're able to like, let go of like this discomfort, this focus, this moment is not going to kill me. I can do anything. Yeah. I think that's, if we were to walk away with one thing that everybody should take out of that conversation, it, that's, that's it. Because that's, for me, uh, that's been a driver for, ever since I was first aware that my own, my own decision-making had that component to it. In other words, if I, I thought there was death on the other side of the decision. So it would be amplified in its importance, and that, that's what was keeping me back. So, well, here's, here's a little bit the problem. Yeah. Here's a little bit the problem because it's not only death, it's like financial death, right? Because mm -hmm. like if you get fired, there's so much chaos in your life that happens for weeks because one guy, your manager said, hmm, I don't like Corey anymore. Corey's not that good. I don't need Corey. I can find somebody better than Corey. So you know what? Why don't you go feed your family some other way? But I've been fired enough times that I've seen that chaos and I've survived and I've said, hey, you know what? Fire me. Hmm. I'll survive. I'll be good. I'll, I'll be bigger than you. Just give me five years. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's resilience, right? You're, you're, maybe it affects you for a few days, but you turn around and you say, okay, I'm not going to let this cause some kind of downward spiral. Yeah, really the only thing is you just have to shorten that time. A few days, try a few minutes. I've seen it enough times. It's yeah. just minutes. It's like, yeah. oh, great, can't control that. Good for you. Back to the grind. What am I doing next? Yeah, but you got, that, but you got to that place by going through it a few times, right? And I, you have to. Yeah, have it's, to. it's rep, repetition, I think, to come back to the... The weights repetition of rejection and failure. You know how many yeah. times girls laughed at me? Oh man, this is a good story. I think I told this story on the maybe it's already on the podcast. But uh, I danced bachata and I walked up to the hottest girl in the club. I hold out my hand and she laughed at me. 
for 15 seconds. She stood there and she laughed in my face for 15 seconds. And I just stood there and I smiled. And held out my hand. And then on the 16th second, she took, she, took my, she took my hand. And she danced with me. And here's the punchline. At the end of the song, her panties were on the floor. She was, she was that into it. She, because all you have to do is have a little bit of confidence. It's crazy how, how, much, how much it changes. Hmm. Now, now, I got so into the story, I forget what the point was. Well, we were talking but about I, I think the, practice rejection. I think the point is just get rejected and be happy with it. You know, get rejected and be happy with it. Yeah. We can hear the because same message in all, all the self alternative? You don't have an alternative. Go ahead. I don't think you do. Yeah, there's there's no alternative. I mean, you can hear, I mean, even the, if you listen to Huberman Lab, that podcast, you know. Um, I love, I hope, I love Huberman. He's my favorite person in the world. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing studies at Stanford now talking about, they're actually researching, okay, does, does the ability to understand, to, to, if your mindset actually thinks your mind is pliable, it will be more pliable. And if you actually practice the things that stress you or cause tra traumatic response in you, if, you, if you, the more you practice those, the more resilient you become. It's just like anything else. And they're starting to actually study this and bear it out from a brain science standpoint. It's super fascinating. Yeah. But it just reinforces things I think that, that people who've gone through a hard time already know. Yeah. I don't know. I, like, I don't know if it's the manifestation thing. Because, like, all these people talk about these things and you think they're fucking crazy. You think they're kooks. But just choose. Just choose it. Just choose believe it. it. Believe mm. you're the best. And other people believe you. That's been yeah. my experience. Yeah. Mindset. Yeah. You know, I changed my title. I changed my title on LinkedIn. And then you start getting offers from people that give you exactly what you need. It's oh, like how many good, employees do you example. have? I have I have five employees. So what do I put on LinkedIn? I put on LinkedIn I have fifteen to twenty-five. And then you start getting offers from people that are selling to companies a little bit bigger than yours. Hmm. And you get better offers. Yeah, that's and then you grow your company that way. Yeah. It's so easy. <laughs> I don't I like why is it interesting? I don't know why it's interesting. It seems obvious. It seems so obvious. Yeah. And now my now my title is fintech startup kingmaker, and everybody's like nobody ever calls themselves a kingmaker, and I'm like, dude, that's what I am. <laughs> you just say what you are, right. and everybody yeah. loves you for it. That's the LinkedIn manifesting functionality. Yeah, but I mean, but yeah. there has to be there's there's like you do need skill. You can't you can't just you can't just bullshit everything. Yeah, yeah. but. No, I like that. In fact, there's, there's probably a reason I'm hearing this message, so I'm going to go take some of that mojo and apply it. <laughs> All right. Well, here you go. Here's my sign-off. Don't subscribe. Stop listening to me. Go build your fucking company. So, Corey, give us, give us, your, give us your, uh, your plug. I need a plug from you before we sign off. All right. Well... Not practiced in the plug, but um, here's what I would say for tech people that are starting out on the leadership journey, or if you're on the leadership journey and you're looking for some help uh, and you don't know where to go, maybe you're reaching for frameworks that you don't know exist, just reach out my way. And uh, I'm starting to give uh, do some master classes where we pile on. There's no charge for master classes. Um, 
My objective is to help tech leaders level up themselves professionally and personally. So feel free to reach out my direction, hit me up on LinkedIn, and uh, I can help you. That's the pitch. Simple. Amazing. So we find you at Corey Berg, B-E-R-G, yep. on LinkedIn. Yep. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, for sure.